Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to the Monday Scramble. We're starting our second week without Kion Wolf around to uh, collaborate with me on funny introductions, which is too bad because we would have had a lot of fun with some of today's topics. But anyway, she'll be back a week from today. Um, uh, I'll tell you what's coming up in our second and third segments before we uh, hone in on our, our opening segment. In the second segment, we'll talk about the possibility, which was raised very prominently over the weekend by Maureen Dowd, but also has been covered by uh, other journalists, that, that Joe Biden may be thinking about getting into the hunt for the presidential nomination uh, on the Democratic side. Also in her column, Maureen Dowd suggested that Howard Schwartz, in sort of a dimly sourced, uh, as, as her sources often are, a dimly sourced nudge that Howard Schwartz, the CEO of Starbucks, might also be considering getting into the race, or at least that he's being urged by people to get into the race. Um, I always thought if we ever had a Starbucks president, it would be the pilot from Battlestar Galactica. But apparently uh, there's another possibility out there. And then in our final segment, we're going to talk about um, speculation that Yelp, once the killer app uh, is now in a so-called death spiral, that death spiral phrase seems to have attached itself to Yelp the way a bad review would to a uh, a restaurant that wasn't faring very well on Yelp. So anyway, that, that'll be our final segment here. We're going to begin, though, uh, with something very close to home. We're going to talk about public radio itself, uh, and we're going to talk about sort of what can be said and what can't be said on public radio. Probably the world's leading expert on that would be Mark Mehmet. Uh, he is NPR Standards and Practices Editor. He joins us from the NPR studios in Washington, D.C. Mark Mehmet, first of all, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Now, this is something that you obviously deal with behind the scenes, but you also opine in uh, in the open view about it. And and you've you've sort of spelled out some of the major considerations about whether or not NPR will use a particular word in a particular situation. What what are those considerations for the benefit of people listening? What do you think about? What does NPR think about? Well, the first thing we think about is or comes from the editorial side. Now, is this word or phrase? crucial to a story. In other words, if we, if we don't include it, if we bleep it, will something be missing that will, that will sort of detract from it and listeners won't understand what the story is really about? Um, so, for instance, when President Obama uh, used the N-word a few weeks back, it, editorially it just made sense. The President of the United States was using that word, using it for a particular reason. Um, to not have included it or to have bleeped it just didn't seem to make sense. In other cases where uh, offensive language is used, it may not be crucial to the story. It may just be titillating, uh, and it's not worth putting into the story because it may stop listeners from actually hearing the rest of, the, of a good report. So that's consideration one. Does, well, actually, let's pause over that for a second. And by the way, if you have your own questions about this, you may tweet us at WNPR. Colin, Greg Hill is in there monitoring your tweets. And uh, you may also call us at 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. So how something works at sort of uh, just furthering the content, um, it, that's still, it's a, it's a close call under any circumstances. I mean, just to talk about the President Obama situation, the first time I really remember thinking about all this and thinking about whether that particular word can be said 
it goes all the way back to the OJ trial. And if you remember, Mark Furman was going to be uh, an important witness at the OJ trial. And he had been an L.A. cop. And there was some documentation that he had used that word, which might therefore almost literally prejudice him as a witness. Um, and so there was a lot of conversation about this. And, and generally, the coverage tended not to use the word, uh, no matter you know what outlet we're talking about. The coverage tended not to use the word. I think for the reasons that you're talking about, Mark, uh, and, and in a way you could almost say this every single time, that if you're going to say N-word, everybody knows what you mean, so why do you ever need to say N-word? So in the case of President Obama, it was more the idea of hearing that word come from that source, that that was important to advancing the story? Exactly, and it was, you know, here he is toward the end of his second term in office, um, many people had, had hoped or expected that earlier in, in his time in Washington, he might have addressed some of the issues around race. And here now he's confronted with it and he's weighing in. And it just seemed like that was a particularly newsworthy event. And to have covered it up, to have bleeped it, to have not aired it just wouldn't have made sense. One of the things that militates, I think, against either bleeping or in the case of the N-word, saying the N-word, is that there, <laughs> there is a way in which, I mean, uh, with the Furman stuff, for example, to go back that far, um, I all often felt almost infantilized by this. You know, we all know what, what word this man had said. Um, and to be saying the N-word about a pretty serious news story, about a murder, you know, I mean, I sort of thought, wow, I just feel kind of euphemistically neutered or something that 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 you know this was too serious to have it reduced to this strange little combination of an initial followed by the word word so i don't know what would be your answer to that what would be the reason for let's say let's say this happened again that, that, that a cop had used this word in a racially charged situation how would npr think about it well i think we would think about is it important does it does it give you something about the mind of that police officer that's going to be important to the story about whether he could adequately investigate this crime, for instance. Um, I could see a case where today we might air that word um, to basically make the point here is exactly what this person said. You know, you were, you were talking earlier about uh, laundering or, or treating people like infants. That That is in the back of our minds. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to reduce things so much that people feel as if part of the story is being left out. On the other hand, community standards vary across the nation. We are national public radio. We have to think about how it will play at stations all across the nation, not just in uh, places that might be more accepting of such language. Um, and, and I would assume also it depends on whether you have sort of the what's sometimes called the actuality. In other words, um, if, if I'm covering a police story, and I don't really don't have this on tape, I don't have a, the actual direct sound of a police officer saying that word, the impact, and I will use that word just for demonstrative purposes, the difference between Officer Smith said the N-word and Officer Smith said nigger, um, it's, that's the same information either way. If I'm not actually playing the sound of, of Officer Smith's voice saying it, it doesn't really probably make that much difference. Would you exactly. agree with that? Yeah. Exactly. And we are, we are a sound-rich medium, so obviously we look for sound. And having that come from the officer's mouth or from a politician's mouth or from a central character in the story is a lot different than just uh, saying it. All right. So consideration number one is does the use of the word actually advance the content, advance the coverage of the news, enhance the, the listener's understanding of the story? What else? I mean, I think you've, in some of your other explanations, um, hinted at what some of the other considerations are, but what are they? Well, in, in terms of uh, the, the reason why you, uh, you, you wanted to talk about this today was I wrote a memo recently mm -hmm. about whether NPR journalists should use some uh, 
offensive language on podcasts, which are not regulated sure. by the FCC. And basically, we came around to say, no, you know, we're, we're NPR no matter where we are, no matter what platform, and we don't want our journalists using such language. And, and besides, uh, there are a lot of great words in the English language. Uh, we don't have to resort to the, to the offensive ones. We can probably tell a better story by using some more uh, refined, if you will, language here and there. And just to put a, a finer point on this question. So, I mean, we haven't said this yet, but one of the considerations that NPR or anybody has if they're broadcast is what is the FCC going to do if we use this word? So, I mean, you have your own internal standards, which you, inter- which you monitor internally and discuss internally, but there are external monitors, too. The FCC, nothing happens unless somebody complains about you. But if somebody does, uh, it touches off um, a pretty complicated process. Listeners are probably unaware of how uh, unwieldy and, and, and time-consuming and resource-consuming an investigation into something like this can be, right? Yes. I mean, the FCC monitors public airwaves, and NPR stations are obviously broadcasting on public airwaves. And if they use language that's indecent or offensive, and, and there are sliding scales and, and different definitions with the FCC, has a long history of decisions on this matter. Um, if they use such language, it could bring complaints from listeners who then will contact or at least get the FCC's uh, attention, and the FCC could come in, and uh, the station could spend a fair amount of money trying to defend its decisions. And and you you use up a lot of personnel time. I used to be on commercial radio, too, and I was on a CBS-owned station, and I can tell you that if they have to call a corporate in New York and talk to the lawyers there, and, and it just it's never good. It's never good that that conversation is being had, even if nothing in, nothing particularly bad happens to the station. Well, let's talk about that podcast distinction, because it's an interesting one, too. I mean, you can sort of make two arguments. One of them is, well, the podcast is a different kind of frontier, you know, and maybe it is an opportunity for NPR to explore without bearing a huge penalty some things that it wouldn't be comfortable exploring on the air. And there are there are some compelling arguments for that that uh, exclude the FCC. Obviously, uh, the podcast is not regulated by the FCC. You can say anything you want. That's number one. Number two, though, would be that, you know, a podcast is a place where you can maybe test or express some things and maybe experiment a little bit more, find out what listeners uh, are, are will tolerate. And the third one is the podcast is more self-selecting, right? If I have a car radio on, I have some expectations about just passively what I might be expected to encounter, whereas a podcast is something you really do seek out. You've, you've made a decision to go and listen. Uh, sometimes, like Saul of Slate's podcasts are preceded by a disclaimer that there's going to be some bad language, so you get that too. You can do that. So why not take advantage of the, all of those differences for the podcast and you know let Linda Holmes uh, or somebody go a little nuts and say a few bad words? Well, I'm not going to ever say that Linda Holmes would use bad words. Um, because she's such a refined young woman. Well, actually, I, actually, I just show, do want to say there's a 2013 pop culture happy hour. Which is an <laughs> o- it's an entire episode about swearing, yeah. which is incredibly heavily bleeped. I mean, it's 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 all of them. I mean, they're having a lot of fun with it. They're talking about swearing in movies and television, um, and but they are swearing like sailors. You never hear any of it because it's all bleeped. Anyway, go ahead. Well, anyway, here's the thing. All your points are, are true. You you can push the envelope on podcasts. You can do things, and we should be trying to tell stories in different ways. I mean, the Planet Money podcast talks about economics in ways that are much different than uh, most traditional broadcasters would. And as you mentioned, Pop Culture Happy Hour is doing things that we probably wouldn't do on the air, or at least speaking in ways that we wouldn't. 
However, um, it does, we think, get a little confusing or could be a little confusing if NPR journalists are on one platform uh, using language that they obviously couldn't use on another. So you, you, we just think it might confuse listeners. It also, we are a brand, NPR is an institution, um, and we value and we work hard at the language and choosing the right words. So we think we can work a little harder and perhaps use more expressive, interesting language than, uh, than the offensive brand. I think that brand word's important. So, I mean, one of the goals of any media company, but particularly NPR, which has you know, made a, tradi uh, a transition from being national public radio to being NPR, is consistency of brand across platforms. And it was interesting, in that episode uh, of the, um, uh, the pop culture happy hour, um, it had followed up, I think, uh, on a conversation between Linda Holmes and Netta Ulibi, which I think was for broadcast, also about swearing in the movies uh, that was also heavily bleeped. And both Linda Holmes and the other people, they talked about what it felt like so to say words li like that into NPR microphones, as they described them. And they were being a little bit humorous, but not entirely. The, the, this is an NPR microphone. You just don't say words like that into an NPR microphone, even if it's for a podcast, even if you know it's going to be bleeped. I mean, I, I assume around NPR there is this kind of sense of this is the kind of place we are and this is what happens in this kind of place and this is what doesn't happen in this kind of place. And one violates that at one's peril. Exactly. I mean, a live mic is a live mic, and you know that it's being recorded, and that uh, if you're talking for a podcast, there's still going to be some raw tape somewhere that could get out. So yes, people are very conscious of that, and one of the uh, I think I think there's a general sense that yes, we should push the envelopes and maybe have a little more fun in, in the digital world, but we're still NPR. Now, oh, we're talking to Mark Mehmet right now, whose uh, job it is to think about these things and worry about these things. He's NPR's Standards and Practices Editor. He's joining us from the NPR studios in Washington. So, um, now, if, if a person listens to public radio over the course of a week, they hear all kinds of things. And the average listener, I think, is not necessarily all that keyed into what's actually NPR-produced content, what's NPR co content from other production sources that might be purchased by NPR and then distributed, and then stuff that's maybe just bought by individual stations. And there there is quite a disparity among those things. I mean, I we could maybe argue about how much disparity there is, but I mean, I'm easily the most transgressive show on this radio station, but I'll hear David Sedaris on one of any number of weekend shows saying stuff that I wouldn't dream of trying to get onto the air. Not necessarily exactly because of the words he used, so this is although occasionally, but sometimes even the thing he's describing pretty graphically. Um, so what about that? That, you know, there's a lot of things that are public radio. They're not all exactly NPR. That's true. I mean, I can only I can only worry about editors here can only worry about what we do and what uh, the acquired programs, the ones that we bring in and then distribute do. Uh, we can't worry about what others who are outside of our universe do, except that, yes, we are aware that the environment is changing and uh, other shows, other platforms are pushing envelopes in different ways. And we don't want to appear to be uh, fussy. We don't want to appear to be too old-fashioned because obviously we're all trying to get people's attention and, and grow our audiences. So we're, we're navigating sort of a, a, middle, a middle ground to mix some metaphors here, I think, um, where we're trying to be a little looser but still have that sort of NPR feel to the way mm -hmm. we speak. 
I should say that not only are listeners not necessarily attuned to all these distinctions, I'm not even all that attuned to all of them. I, I sometimes I don't know exactly what, what, the, what the status of an individual program is. But I would assume that if you, Mark, were making a mental silent list of the kind of outside, outside shows that maybe you worry about a little bit or think are going to push the envelope or create situations to which you within NPR are going to have to respond, Terry Gross and Fresh Air wouldn't be that high on the list, except that, as we all know, she did a show about a book that was about the word a-hole, uh, and it was by a ling- I think it was by the linguist Jeffrey Nunberg, and there was she basically decided that she was not going to say that uh, euphemism version of that word for the entire show. So she said that word many times, resulting in various people's supercuts on on YouTube and and ringtones and all kinds of stuff like this. Oh, yeah. So, but she's got she's in an interesting situation there. This is a linguist's book a, and, and a respected linguist's book about a word. And she's just kind of made what strikes me as an essentially sensible decision. And it's not a decision that lands in your lap, but it's not a decision that, that has no impact on your future decisions, right? Right. And, and, uh, and a show like Fresh Air and some of the others, what they decide to do does reflect on us. And, and, and NPR, rightly or wrongly, sometimes gets blamed or credited for the things that, that such programs do. As I recall, Terry began that uh that broadcast by talking a little bit with the linguists about how they were going to refer to the word, and he pretty much agreed that for the airwaves, they would do it the way they did. All right, we've got uh, Rebecca in Rocky Hill with, I think, a really interesting question. Hi, Rebecca. You're on the air. Hello. Thank you for having this show. It's a great topic. Sure. I'm, I'm calling because I have a son with Down syndrome, and I once heard NPR play a comedian who used a joke referencing the word retard as the punchline. And I was, needless to say, horrified, and I was really glad to hear you say that you understand that some words stop the listeners from hearing the next thing you say, because frankly, it stopped me from hearing anything on NPR for six months. I never turned it on again for six months. And I'm wondering when the word retard, which is such a hurtful word, is going to be unacceptable to NPR. It's a really interesting question, and I will say before Mark answers, it's something that we've grappled with a few times here. We've had guests who have very casually used that word. It's just part of the way that they talk, um, and so I've had to write a number of apologetic emails. Anyway, go ahead, Mark. Uh, how does NPR well, see this? Well, Rebecca, I would hope that we wouldn't do that again. Um, I know we've had discussions about that word over the years. And it's one of those words that, uh, for worse in this case probably, has changed over time. And when I was young, it was probably a word that was used uh, commonly. Uh, but people have, over time, realized that it is offensive, that it does hurt people, and that there are better ways of talking. Uh, we talk a lot here now about not labeling people, but using action words, you know, especially people who have conditions. You know, don't refer to someone as being uh, wheelchair-bound. No, no, no. They, they, they use a wheelchair or... Don't refer to someone as a schizophrenic. Talk about them as someone with schizophrenia because they're, they're, they're much more than that. They're a father, a mother, a, a daughter, an attorney, whatever. Um, we do talk about that a lot, and, and the word you brought up is one that I know is on our radar screen, and I can't guarantee because it's sometimes live radio that we won't uh, get it wrong again, but we'll try not to. Yeah, and we know we've had to come up on live radio too. And the difficulty is, people are people that who've used it on our airwaves are never using it to describe a person with a disability. The problem with the word is that it slipped into a kind of generalized discourse. So people will say something like, "Oh, I'm a real retard about that." 
and and it's still I, I mean I find it incredibly offensive. <laughs> the blood drains out of my face on the one or two occasions that that it's, it's popped up on my show. But it, it is the difficulty with it is people feel as though when they're not using it, when they're not directing it at a person with disabilities, that it's somehow or other been sort of denatured. And obviously, as Rebecca illustrates, that's not the case. Exactly. I mean, that's been the discussion here in Washington about the football team here. I mean, the football team here says we're not using our name to deride anybody. It's uh, something much different. We, like some other broadcasters, have decided that's a name we're not going to use except when we're reporting about the controversy over the name. Um, who does who makes the decision? For example, one of the uh, one of the I think I saw um, a transcript that you did for the two way where you're talking about um, an instance where the F word was used in sort of battlefield reporting. So you had um, I, I think a soldier saying get behind that effing car. Right. Um, so the F word is probably still the last frontier, you know, in various compounds of the F word. I mean, it doesn't it, it doesn't get too much more transgressive than that. So. Who who makes that decision? I mean, do they run it by you and you throw some holy water on it, or is it, are there five <laughs> people who, who decide, or how does it work? There there is often four or five people. I mean, I may I may be involved as a consultant on a lot of these issues, uh, consulting our past history, for instance, precedent. There's a couple of deputy managing editors who run the newsroom on a day to day basis. Um, our top editor, Mike Oreskes, could be involved in a decision like that. Um, it needs to go up to the top and needs to be sort of a of a joint decision of we're comfortable, here's why we're comfortable, and here's how we're going to handle it on the air. Here's how we're going to give listeners a heads up. Here's how we're going to introduce the, the line or the quote or the bit of audio. So one last question. So one document I read getting ready for this was a document. You may have written it or collaborated on it for all I know. It's called NPR Policy on Use of Potentially Offensive Language. And one of the things that, that uh, comes up in this document is sort of how you use it with cultural products, how you deal with cultural products. And there's a description at one point of a Randy Newman song that was being performed on, on some uh, creators at Carnegie program. So the song... It's like many Randy Newman songs. He does kind of have a point and a message, but it's full of, it has maybe about four instances of questionable or, or crude language in the service of whatever point Randy Newman is making. So the decision was made to bleep that. Um, and some people might push back against that, Mark Mehmet. Some people would say, well, no, this, this is a man who really is trying to make a creative and artistic point, and you're kind of not letting him paint with all the colors uh, potentially on his palette. How would you respond to that? Well, I would say, good point. I wasn't in on the discussion on that one. Uh, more recently, with some of Nina Simone's songs, we did go ahead and uh, air some words that would be offensive to many around the country, um, explain to people that this was an artistic statement, and, and, and putting it in context. A lot of what we talk about when we're considering whether or not to air things is, do we need it to add context and, and depth to the story? And how are we going to tell listeners Respectfully, that's why we're putting this on the air. All right, Mark Mamet, so great to talk to you. Uh, we appreciate this, and uh, I think it helps our listeners understand a few things. So uh, th thanks for being with us today. You're welcome. And in just a minute, we're going to talk to Margaret Carlson, political correspondent extraordinaire, about some of the news that is, has been suggested, if not confirmed, over the weekend. Thank you very much for finding me. 5,000 bucks a so I'm really out of luck. That's more than Heidi Fleiss was charging me. So, f you very much, the FCC, for proving that free speech just isn't free. 
nuclear channels a dear channel, so Howard Stern must go. Attorney General Croft doesn't like strong words, and so he's charging twice as much as all the drugs for Rush Limbaugh. All right, welcome back to our Monday Scramble. We created this um, format for our Monday show partly so we could talk about things that happen over the weekend so we wouldn't be kind of overscheduled, and things do happen over the weekend. Over this weekend, there was more speculation than we had seen heretofore about the possibility that Vice President Joe Biden might actually enter the hunt for the Democratic nomination. Uh, joining us now, beloved uh, political pundit Margaret Carlson, a Bloom- Bloomberg View columnist uh, and a friend of the show. Hi, Margaret. Hey, how are you? Good. So um, this happened. This broke in a couple of places over the weekend. Maureen Dowd famously was was dangling the idea. But uh, other um, political journalists have been covering this for a while. There's been a draft Biden movement that apparently had relatively little to do, as far as we know, with Joe Biden himself. And there's been a lot of other talk about this. But I think one of the things that really militated against it was the incredible tragedy this man's just been through. He's no stranger to tragedy, but he's been through another tragedy, the death at a, of a, at a very young age of his son. But what was suggested over the weekend was that rather than being an impediment, that may actually be a trigger to him considering the nomination, right? The suggestion that Bo, in his waning hours, really wanted his father to run for president. What do you make of that? Well, it sounds, you know, it sounds right to the extent that people look for a reason to go on when they don't feel like going on um, and meeting you know, beyond the person dying. And they were extraordinarily close, and both father and son are politicians. So you can see where Bo would would want that. It, it rings true to me. Um, I actually wrote a column not about Bo telling him to run, but about Biden running shortly after the funeral on the grounds that Clinton looked weak even then. That was about a month ago. Um, she looks weaker now. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden is the opposite of Hillary Clinton in terms of humanity and genuine nature. Um, and I was mystified that Obama threw all his weight behind Hillary so early, you know, without any objection. I, I, I've never understood that. I'm not saying he said, I endorse Hillary, but don't we believe, don't we all believe that, that Obama was you know, backing her? So I thought, well, maybe maybe Joe Biden had a heart-to-heart with Obama we don't know about. Otherwise, why would he do such a thing? Right. So and, and we do we do know that um, the president seems especially connected to Joe Biden right now because of the tragedy. Whenever you see them together, Obama seems to have his hand on Biden's back. He's just uh, obviously very concerned about him. But it is possible that one of the reasons that happened was that, in fact, Obama assumed that Biden, maybe because of conversations that they'd had, that Biden wasn't really all that interested. I mean, he's getting on in years. He has a chance to finish out his political career in a year or so uh, on a, a resoundingly high note, um, you know, why not have it end that way? I mean, maybe Ob- President Obama is as surprised as anybody else by this sudden rush of speculation. I hope so. Otherwise, it seems like a betrayal to me. Um, you know, and and perhaps you know the the darker side is that Obama saw the Clintons like other people see the Clintons. You know, a you know, maybe they're grifters, always making a buck on on good works and other things, but they're powerful, and you don't want to go against them. Uh, and he just 
took the path of least resistance. I would, I, I would like your more optimistic view of the nature of President Obama and say, you know, he knew that Joe Biden wanted to go out on the note of having served his country well, and he's in his 70s, and, and that would be it for him. Um, I want to say as we go along here, uh, we're going to be talking about this and about the notion also uh, dangled by Maureen Dowd that uh, Howard Schwartz, the CEO of Starbucks, could conceivably get into the race, although that seemed like a much less likely scenario. Uh, if you have calls, if you have questions, if you have comments, you may indeed call us at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may tweet at us at WNPR Colin. The other thing that's happened, uh, Margaret Carlson, is, I mean, it's not only President Obama who's on the hook here, right? As long as it appeared as though Hillary Clinton and, and you know, uh, less prominently Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley were the field, it meant that various other prominent and not so prominent political figures were in the same position, right? If they had to pick an endorsement, never bet against the Clintons in a situation like that. There's no other big horse in the race, so why not do it? So you really, you've got a lot of people out there who, who may have done pretty much, maybe even much more overtly and officially what you're suggesting President Obama has done unofficially, which is throw in their lot with uh, with Hillary Clinton, unaware of the possibility that Biden would get back in. And I assume you can't unbreak that promise, right? No, no. If, if Hillary thinks further, um, aren't all bets off? A Biden candidacy seems to me to depend uh, on timing. It's too soon right now. If, if he's interested and his supporters um, want it to work, I think they should tamp this down because it, it's too early. He needs to be the candidate who comes in when there's a void to fill, uh, just because of what you said. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't raised any money. And the endorsements he would have gotten as a sitting vice president, he let go off to uh, Hillary Clinton. So that's, a, that's a definitely a problem for him. But if he's seen as the person who comes in and saves um, the election for Democrats, then people will switch over. I mean, it's not unheard of people switching their allegiance. Well, I did that, but situation has changed, and so now I'm doing this. And, and I suppose that waiting game, whatever waiting game he's playing right now, it, it does have a lot to do probably with Hillary Clinton's numbers. If her numbers get worse, if she looks worse in head-to-head polling against Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Scott Walker or whoever, if it looks as though – I mean, you can't save a party that isn't drowning. You can't save a party that doesn't need to be saved. So if that's the pretext, if that's the kind of grammar that gets used to get Joe Biden into the race, it, it probably – it can't be an iffy thing, right? It's got to be a thing where, wow, you know, she's this party's a ship that's gone down for the second time or something. Right. If that, if, if that is, in fact, the pretext, because now doesn't it have to be given that so much time has passed by, so many endorsements made, so much money raised, so many operatives put in place? I, that has to be because he should have gotten in much sooner otherwise that. You, know, you don't want to use the death of your son by any means, but it does change things, right, in a person's mind. So he may be thinking that he wants to run when he didn't want to run before. But separate from that, I think the, it, the timing has to be better than to, to declare right now and say, Bo told me to do it. it you know, I think it's, it's got to wait for circumstances to change a little bit more. And I suspect they will. It, 
the you know the email business. I don't think that you know, people say, oh, it doesn't matter to your average voter. I think it's kind of gonna matter, you know, because it's not going away. And the more you think about it, the more it, it encapsulates a lot of the Clinton's problems. You know, we do good work, so don't question us. Um, we may do things our own way, but don't question us because we're we're good people. Uh, and Hillary says that when she's you know making her excuses about it, um, you know, there is nothing to it. It's just convenience. Don't don't. Why do? You, oh, oh, the other thing she says is, I've already answered that question. This is this is old news. Right. Um, when when I heard about Sidney Blumenthal, since you're not here, you wouldn't know that Sidney Blumenthal was one of those people that was kind of drummed out of um, Obama land uh, when Hillary proposed that he come in because he has a you know a mixed record and just exemplifies you know some of the the Clintons you know he he carried baggage for the Clintons and then you find out through the emails that weren't destroyed oh he was there the whole time. Um, you know, there's so many things like that probably yet to come out. Yeah, although I, I see the I see that a little bit differently than you do, Margaret. I mean, it always seems to me that if you're going to have a problem, if you're going to have to address something, if you're going to have to deal with something, you're, you're, you're well served by having to deal with it in the summer of the year before the election year. And, and this is, by the way, something that, that Biden won't have the opportunity to do, which is whatever demons or skeletons are kicking around. I mean, if he gets in late, they're going to stay with him all the way to the finish line, where, where sometimes you can shake stuff off during the summer and, and you you know, by the time it's it's actually 2016, you're talking about other stuff. People have just burned out on the subject. But I just wanted to ask you about another thing, which is it does seem as though what was Biden's historic weakness is now his strength. I mean, the, the, he's all, often been almost caricatured as this loose cannon, this guy who will say anything. We just did a segment on profanity on NPR. He's the guy who will, you know, say a bad word into a live mic. He, I mean, he'll do this notion that he, he's unscripted and, and he's out of control. Um, used to be a real mark against him or a way to make jokes about him. Suddenly in this area of in this era of overmanaged politicians, Hillary Clinton being symbolic of that, but Barack Obama also kind of falling into that category. Super cautious, super scripted, overmanaged, overthought. You've got this guy who seems very authentic and spontaneous. And at least for the moment, one one wonders how enduringly, but at least for the moment, he sounds like a breath of fresh air, even though he's, you know, been around. I mean, he last ran for president. He first ran for president in 88, then in 2008. He's not exactly a breath of fresh air, but Margaret, he seems like one. <laughs> well, you know, in all of us, you know, what, what our, our bad traits have a flip side of, of you know, sometimes saving us. Um, you know, I, I think to, you know, to all the things he's done, and then I think of Donald Trump, and I say, has Donald Trump neutralized gas and, and, you know, being outspoken and blurting things out and talking too much. And I, I wonder the degree to which, you know, nor, some normal people, I mean, I think there's a, you know, a, 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 some of the support, Trump support comes from people who just have contempt for government. But some other people say what you just said, which is I want, I want somebody who speaks their mind as spontaneous. And remember George Stephanopoulos' book about Clinton was called All Too Human. Mm-hmm. It actually applies to Joe Biden in faith. He's just all too human. And 
that breath of fresh air is more welcome now than than it was before. Certainly, you know, back the first time we ran. Right. Um, I find it, you know, like if you, I mean, and this is not to, you know, go back to Hillary Clinton all the time, but she's one of the more, I, I don't think she needs to be packaged or managed. She's just, she, she does it herself. Mm-hmm. She manages and packages and pamps down herself. I, I remember going to Arkansas in 1991 when Bill Clinton was a rising star and he founded the Democratic Leadership Council. And I met the Clintons then. And every once in a while, I, I, I spent like 10 days there. It's a long time to spend in Little Rock. You, you could see that, yeah, she can actually have a belly laugh and, you know, have a good time. And hey, she's driving a Buick. I think it was a Buick. Um, all of that is not for public consumption. I don't think we ever see her, we don't see her that way. And certainly in this campaign, you know, she, the Scooby van was, was, you know, one trip to Iowa, and last week she flew on a private jet with a huge entourage. So, you know, she does things that are supposed to make you human, not that a van makes you human, but, but they're, that's what's programmed. The part, the, the human part is programmed. Right. What's not programmed is the natural Hillary, which is to be completely buttoned up and to think everybody's out to get her. <laughs> Margaret Carlson, we have to uh, go now, but thank you so much for joining us today, Margaret Carlson. Of course, a, a columnist for Bloomberg View. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk uh, about the world of, well, about a killer app that isn't so killer anymore. Back into time. Old school. So when I say Joe, you say Biden. Joe, Joe, when I say Joe, you say Biden. Joe, Joe, Biden. All right. Uh, I want to thank everybody who helped out with today's show. Before we get on to the final segment here, and I run out of time, uh, Tucker Ives is the producer uh, here of the Monday Scramble. Uh, Betsy Kaplan's on the board because no Kion Wolf this week. We don't lose a step with Betsy Kaplan there. And I think I see Anna Geismar on the phones back there. Thanks to everybody else who helped out uh, tomorrow on the show. It's going to be a show all about dogs, but specifically Yale's Canine Cognition Center, where they're trying to figure out what dogs, how dogs' minds really work, um, a subject that can have profound implications for not just dogs. Uh, anyway, well, we're here with the scramble right now. Our final segment is we're going to look at one of the earlier triumphs of um, Internet commerce, which doesn't seem to be working out so well right now. Joining us is Eric Jackson, contributor to Forbes.com and founder and managing partner of Ironfire Capital LLC. In his newsletter and in a linked piece on Forbes, he's using a term about Yelp that uh, would be a very damning term if, say, somebody reviewing a restaurant uh, on Yelp said, well, this restaurant's in a death spiral. Uh, but that seems to be a term that's coming up about Yelp right now. Eric Jackson, welcome to the show. Hey, Colin. So um, this is, in, in, in the work that you do, which is uh, highly sophisticated and very nuanced, and most of it's way above my head, you have to, you look at a lot of different things. The first thing you, the first basic easy thing to look at with Yelp is what are the shares trading at? So what have you seen there? Well, listen, this is a company that had an IPO a few years ago, and um, it had a lot of skeptics when it first uh, came public because people weren't sure that this was going to be a sustainable uh, business model long term. I mean, basically, in short, it's kind of a new version of the 
yellow pages mm-hmm. um, on the internet and on your mobile device. It lets you kind of check easily for local businesses around you, uh, whether it's a hardware store or a restaurant or you know a handyman or something like that that you want to get over to your house. It's sort of a new way of, of reaching out and finding those people, complete with reviews. And the revenues were kind of slow to come in the early days. Uh, and when it first IPO'd, I mean, a number of people, a number of stock investors were, weren't certain whether it would have staying power, but they seemed to prove their skeptics wrong. The stock did uh, very well. It traded up from something like 10 bucks a share after it IPO'd to just uh, a year ago, it hit an all-time high of almost 90 bucks a share. Uh, so it seemed kind of well on its way to being kind of a, a permanent fixture uh, in the new kind of mobile landscape. And yet, um, ever since almost hitting that, that all-time high, uh, it's had a series of bad um, earnings results. And now uh, it's taken the stock down to where it's trading currently, which is $25, which is you know still a lot higher than 10 but way below what it was trading at a year ago. Right, and it's way below what it was trading at when there was talk of a sale, right? Uh, yeah, uh, you know what's I have. I mean, I've owned the stock in the early years uh, after it went public, uh, but I have not owned it recently, and I haven't, I haven't shorted it. But I've been certainly watching what's happened, and in the last um, few years, it's been strange, or the last year particularly, because uh, after it hit this all-time high. It seemed to have um, every quarter, every three months, they come out with their earnings reports, and they've had about four bad earnings reports in a row now, where they've disappointed investors with uh, with the revenues that they've that they've announced in their earnings, and it's, it's uh, each time it happens, it sort of takes the stock down another leg, and. What was interesting a few months ago is that after about three bad reports in a row, and when the stock was down to $37 from 90, uh, the company announced through the Wall Street Journal uh, that they were putting themselves up for sale. And for a short period, that provided a real pop in the stock because investors seemed to get excited that, oh, well, this is is a company that's going to be bought for a premium, and suddenly the shares overnight went from 37 to 50. But it, it always struck me as strange because why would you, you know, if you were going to put the company up for sale, why would you put it up for sale at 37 versus 90? So to me, it read as though this is the company that sort of recognized that something, you know, something had changed in the business and things weren't going as well as they thought they were only a few months before. So to me, it, it kind of raised some red flags and you know what? What subsequently happened is that they they announced maybe six weeks later that they had were not going to sell themselves. That the founder CEO had decided that it was best to kind of go it alone, and that immediately hurt the shares. And then just last week they had another earnings report which disappointed investors, and so now we're down at twenty five dollars as opposed to thirty seven dollars when they put themselves uh, up for sale. Now, another thing that uh, somebody like you, uh, Aaron Jackson, would do is is sort of a, a capitalist version of Kremlinology, right? You look at the leadership, you look at the signs that are being sent. So one of the things that, ha- that happened with Yelp is its chairman, Max Levchin, has announced that he's leaving the board to pursue other interests. That puts your antennae up, I take it. Well, yeah. It's, I mean, uh, just like in politics, uh, in, in business, 
you know, nothing, you know, to the public, nothing ever goes badly behind closed doors, right? Every, everybody's friends, everybody's gets along perfect. Uh, you never kind of hear about the what you know the true uh, house of cards, you know, types of discussions that go on behind closed doors. So what was interesting is about the chairman leaving is that uh, there's there's something in Silicon Valley called the, the PayPal mafia. PayPal was obviously a, a longtime uh, company and uh, was bought by eBay, you know, more than 10 years ago. But the the core group of people that were part of PayPal have really gone on to found incredible companies, and probably Elon Musk is like the most famous guy from that mix. But uh, there's there's also a number of others, and the founder of Yelp is a guy named Jeremy Stoppelman, who was who was a member of the PayPal mafia, and so was the chairman Max Levchin. Uh, and there was, in fact, there was another. There was a third guy who was on the board, uh, named Keith Reboy, uh, who was also a member. So you had a very kind of tight knit group. And at the beginning of 2015, uh, Keith announced he was leaving the board. And you know, to the public, it was like, well, it's just I've been on it a long time. It's time to leave. My my, you know, my job here is done. Type of thing. And then uh, just last week, in, you know, at the same time that they announced these latest bad earnings. The chairman decided announced that he was stepping down to pursue other interests, and it just seems like an odd, uh, an odd choice because you know, he's doing his other interests already. He has been doing his other interests, so uh, serving on the board of Yelp didn't seem to get in the way. He also serves on the board of Yahoo, and he's not the chairman of Yahoo. So you would think that if he wanted to free up some time in his schedule. You know, maybe he would choose to stay at the company where where he's the chairman, as opposed to where he's just another board member. Yet he didn't do that. So, you know, my reading of the tea leaves is that there's probably an internal disagreement here between uh, the chairman, the ex-chairman now, and and the founder CEO who who decided he didn't want to sell the company. So, to me, I I think that the business has has turned on them, and perhaps the chairman thinks that you know the time was now to sell the company as opposed to keep going. Right. One of the things you say at the end of your piece, too, is the app keeps dropping in popularity. So now we're moving into the area that maybe somebody like me can understand. So it seemed like the model for Yelp, obviously, it was the Yellow Pages, but more, because I used the Yellow Pages for years, and I never scribbled comments on them for other people to look at. So this, you know, the, the big feature of Yelp really kind of was the reviews, that you mm -hmm. could get some guidance from other people about this. But a, a couple of things seem to happen. One of them, I think, is that there are other competitors in this field right now. There's TripAdvisor. There's other uh, places where you can maybe get some of those reviews. And the other one is, I, you know, there, I lost confidence as a user in this. I just thought this is a bunch of jerks who have all kinds of multiple agendas here. And it's also a lot of drunk people looking for a place to go have the other kind of apps, appetizers. And, and I just after a while, I thought I don't really have any confidence uh, in, in what I'm finding out from Yelp. If I'm standing on Sixth Avenue and I want to know where to go have lunch, I'm not going to look at Yelp anymore. Is that part of the problem they have? I think that for and you know there are a number of other sites like TripAdvisor, for example, is a, is a is a travel site that gives reviews about hotels or you know cruises that you might go on, and it, it, it's just the, the world that we live in now, thanks to Facebook, uh, where you know everyone expects to chime in with their comments and leave their comments and leave their reviews, and you know it, for the most part it, they're helpful. However, is it possible to game the system? If you know what you're doing, absolutely. And you know, and, and even though the companies like Yelp will claim that they 
police this and can prevent it from happening. Of course, that, that stuff goes on. I think I think most people, most users, you know, decide that well, if there's there's a trade-off here, and I got to put up with some, you know, a few bogus reviews or a lot of bogus reviews in, in exchange for the quick information. I'm, you know, that and it's free. I'm gonna I'm gonna make that trade, but. I think so. I think it's an issue, but I think the bigger issue, in terms of Yelp's declining popularity, is just that its its reason for being, I guess, didn't really uh, wasn't wasn't enough. It wasn't a wasn't enough of a business to keep it going. And you had all the potential people that could have bought Yelp, or you know, might still buy Yelp, people like Google or people like Facebook. Um, or others, they've, they've, or Facebook, Facebook, they've decided to kind of build these capabilities into their own core products uh, as sort of an add-on. You know, it, they didn't see the need to go out and drop whatever it would cost, five or six billion dollars, to buy this standalone company and integrate it. They could just do it much cheaper themselves. All right. Well, lesson learned, maybe. Eric Jackson, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Eric Jackson is a contributor to Forbes.com and founder and managing partner of Ironfire Capital LLC. So we're going to have to go. As I say, tomorrow is a show all about uh, dogs. Thanks to Greg Hill for being our tweet master today. Anna Geismar on the phones. Uh, Tucker Ives producing. Betsy Kaplan on the board. And we'll be back tomorrow, as I say, with a conversation about the consciousness of dogs. To yelp in my underpants alone. Sometimes I spew some venom on the screen of my phone. I like to yelp in my underpants alone. I'm gonna yelp, I'm gonna yelp, I'm gonna yelp about this place. I'm gonna spew my venom all over your virtual face.